noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Do I feel good? Am I happy? Do I like my job? How can I help one person today? A couple of weeks ago, I searched on Google, what is the most important question in life? And uh, those were some of the questions proposed. Do I feel good? Am I happy? Do I like my job? How can I help one person today? Somebody asked, do I really have enough shoes? Others were more philosophical. Uh, a 2012 issue of the magazine Philosophy Now asked its readers exactly that question. What is the most important question in life and why? And a good number of people responded that the question why is the most important question. How best can we serve others was another. Uh, what one goal do I want to accomplish in life was another. And philosophers have debated this for thousands of years. Aristotle asked, what is the ultimate purpose of human existence? Now, if you've been with KCC this year, you'll know we've been following Mark's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as Mark has told us the story of Jesus' life, we've seen all sorts of people encounter him and have to answer the question, who is this man? Some weeks back, I likened Mark's gospel to a series of stained glass windows. Some of you may remember that. I said, each scene in Mark's gospel is like another window, one after the next, after the next, each telling us something of who Jesus is. Two weeks ago, Wayne said, Mark's gospel is like a TV series. Same idea, one episode after the next, after the next, each telling us something of who Jesus is. We've heard uh, prophets of centuries long past say, this is who he is. We've heard John the Baptist say, this is who he is. We've heard demons say, this is who he is. We've heard the ancient people of Israel say, this is who he is. The learned scholars of Judaism say, this is who he is. We've even heard God the Father speak from heaven and say, this is who he is. But of course, all along what Mark is doing is asking us, his readers, asking you, who do you say Jesus is? Here's all the evidence. These are the things he said and did. This is who other people say he is. Now, who do you say Jesus is? And that is the most important question you will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus? 
And before this point, this stained glass window, this episode in the series, before this point in Mark's gospel, we've been unable to answer that question, or at least unable to fully answer it. In the first half of the gospel, we've seen signs, evidences that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised one who would inaugurate the forever reign of the forever kingdom of God. We've seen signs that he is, in fact, the king of that kingdom. He's shown that he has power and authority over storms and seas, over sickness and disease, over demons and the spiritual forces of evil, even over death and over life itself. So, so far we can say, Jesus is the king, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And that's true, but it's not enough. And it's only in this scene, this stained glass window, this episode, this scene at the cross, that we are able to fully answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? So look with me in your Bibles, if you will, at uh, verse 39 of Mark chapter 15. This Roman centurion, a, a professional executioner, standing at the cross up close to Jesus, the closest any human being was to Jesus in his final moments, saw something. Something that caused him to say the words recorded here in verse 39. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Who do you say Jesus is? Mark asks you. He is the Son of God. The soldier says, well, what did the soldier see that led him to that profession? He didn't see any of Jesus' miracles. He didn't hear his debates with the Pharisees or any of his parables or sermons. He didn't see Jesus walk on water or still the stormy seas or heal the sick or feed the hungry or cleanse the leper or cast out demons or raise the dead. And yet this professional soldier, a captain, a commander in the Roman army says, this man was the son of God. What did he see? And note, this was no cheap confession. At this time in Roman history, the title, son of God, belonged to the emperor and to the emperor alone. Tiberius Caesar was, to a captain in the Roman army, the only son of God. This confession was treason and could have cost him his life. But he saw something. He saw something on that cross that was worth more than his job, more even than his mortal life. He saw something that caused him to say, this man, this man, not Emperor Caesar, this man was the son of God. What did he see? Well, look again at verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. What was it that prompted his confession? He saw how Jesus died. Your translation might say, he saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last. It was in this moment, with this final breath, that the soldier saw 
just who it was that hung naked before him on the cross. So let's look now carefully at the scene before us in the text and see for ourselves what the centurion saw. And then we'll hear Mark explain what it means. And then you and I will have to answer the question, who is he? So first, what did the centurion see? Well, follow with me in your Bibles in chapter 15 of Mark, and I'll pick out a few verses. Verse 25 to begin with. It was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. Verse 34. At the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus was on the cross from nine in the morning until he breathed his last at three in the afternoon. Six hours. Now, six hours on a Roman cross would undoubtedly have been agony. But... Death on a cross in only six hours was very unusual. Death by crucifixion took days. That was part of the point of it. If the Romans wanted to execute somebody quickly, they had plenty of other ways of doing that. When they crucified someone, it was because they wanted them to suffer long as an example to others to not mess with Rome. But Jesus died after only six hours. Now hold that thought while we look at some other details. Go back to verse 23. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Verse 36. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a star, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And this time he did drink it. Mark doesn't say so explicitly, but John does. Chapter 19, verse 13 of John's Gospel. The first time the wine was mixed with myrrh, the purpose of which was to dull the senses. But Jesus wouldn't take it. He would not allow himself to be dulled. He had not yet finished his work. He was resolved to remain fully alert and in control until he had fully completed the task, the mission the Father had given him. The second time, it's sour wine, not mixed with myrrh. And he drinks it to symbolize that he has fully drunk the cup of suffering and judgment that the Father had allotted him. As he had said to his disciples not long before this, are you able to drink the cup that I must drink? Are you able to bear the judgment that I must bear for you and the sins of all God's people? No, Jesus alone could And Jesus alone did drink to empty the cup of suffering and judgment. Verse 36. He drinks the sour wine. Not the rich, beautiful wine that he will again drink in the days of the consummation of his kingdom. No. He told his disciples that he would not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day. The wine of celebration he will drink again in the new creation together with all who share his table. On the cross he will drink only the sour wine of suffering and judgment. 
and having drunk it, verse 37, he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. What are we seeing on the cross? Jesus is in full control of his senses. It's only been six hours. Jesus is physically able to endure on the cross still for days. His breathing is strong enough that he can cry out with a loud voice in prayer to his father in verse 34. And then again, after drinking the sour wine in verse 37. And then having drunk the sour wine, having received upon himself the full measure of judgment, he breathed out his last. He gave his life. I came to give my life, he had said. No one takes it from me, he had said. I lay it down of my own accord, he had said. As if any person, any mere mortal, or any demon of hell even, could take from the Son of God his life. The soldier saw something he'd never seen before. He saw a man fully in control of his senses, fully in control of his thoughts and his speech and his breathing, fully able to endure still days on the cross, simply choose to lay down his life. He saw a man with authority over life and over death, simply choose to breathe away his life. This soldier had seen many people. He had killed many. But this day he saw power and authority over life and over death, exercised not by sword or by cross, but by the will of a kind of man like no other, the truly divine man, the God man. The centurion saw what he saw on the cross and concluded rightly, this man is the son of God. And he saw the Son of God lay down his life. And he saw him lay it down under the judgment of God. It was dark from verse 33, from the sixth hour to the ninth, from noon to 3 p.m., the brightest, hottest part of the Mediterranean daytime. But the sky turned dark. It's not that it was a cloudy day. No, the sun's light failed. So records Luke in his gospel. What would the soldier have made of that? Would he, a Roman, a Gentile, would he have known the Old Testament prophecies that foretold this darkness and explained the darkness and explained it as an act of judgment? Would he have known the words of Amos? On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. No, he would not have known and understood the theological implications of what was unfolding around him. But what he did know was that this God-man, this God-man on the cross before his eyes, cried out in the darkness to one who could stop the shining of the sun. He didn't know what it all meant. But what he did know was that he was witness to God, the God-man, crying out to the God unseen. 
in his presence and under his judgment, laying down his life. And what did that all mean? Well, the soldier wouldn't have understood all this, at least not in that moment, though perhaps he came to understand later. But Mark tells us what it means. Look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's that all about? Well, the curtain of the temple was a huge veil, 30 foot high, that separated the most holy place in the temple, the place where God manifested his presence from sinful mankind. The curtain kept God on this side and man on that side. And there were rules and ceremonies which required the high priest of Israel to enter behind the curtain into God's holy presence. But only once a year and only after careful observance of all the ceremonial laws, because sin cannot enter the presence of God and survive. All the ceremonies were symbols, pictures of atonement for sin, of God satisfying his justice while providing a way for sinful men and women to be forgiven. And once a year, the high priest would enter behind the curtain on behalf of the people of Israel. Early, uh, early um, Jewish tradition stated that the temple curtain was as thick as the palm of a man's hand is wide. It's about four and a half inches thick. The Bible doesn't say that. Ancient Jewish tradition says that. So it might be an exaggeration. But even if it's exaggerated fourfold, an inch-thick woven linen curtain would be impossible for any human being to tear. Even if there were a human being who could grab hold of the top of a 30-foot-high curtain. What Mark is telling us here is that God, in that moment when his judgment was executed on Jesus on the cross, when his justice was satisfied on Jesus on the cross, when his wrath was propitiated by Jesus on the cross, God reached down from heaven and with hands unseen tore the curtain from top to bottom. The barrier between God and man was torn. The way into the most holy place was no longer through the elaborate ceremonies of priests. All who would come to know God, all who would now come to God can come to him only through the torn body of Jesus, the son of God who gave his life on the cross. The way to God is now and evermore only through Jesus. But the other side of that reality is that the curtain that kept sinful people, and that means every single person on this earth, the curtain that kept sinners safe from the holy presence of God has been torn in two. The curtain that kept you and me from judgment has been torn. All that now stands between sinful men and the Holy One is the God-man on the cross. Sinners may now enter his presence. Sinners may now be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that's the good news. But the other side of that news is that God is now held back from executing judgment upon sinners only by 
by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so to look to Jesus on the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, with all my heart, thank you. I repent of my sin. I put my hope only in you. Is to be reconciled to God. But to look to Jesus on the cross and say, whatever, is to put yourself full in the face of the holy God with all your sin and no one to shield you. So what do you see when you look at the cross? Only some who were there that day saw rightly. For sure, plenty of people saw a man die on a cross. But some, like the soldiers in verse 24, carried on playing games, rolling dice for his clothes, but not the least interested in Jesus. Some, like those in verse 29, just passed by. They came for the show to mock him. To hurl insults at what looked to all the world like faith. Some, like the religious leaders in verse 31, congratulated each other on how clever they had been in bringing Jesus down. So they thought. Or are you like the centurion? Who, verse 39, literally says, stood facing him. And saw the Son of God laying down his life under the judgment of the unseen God. What do you see? Who do you say this man is? Why don't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see? Your son, there was a moment at his baptism when the heavens were torn open, the word tells us, and you said, behold, my son. And now we see again at the cross, the curtain torn, the curtain on which were embroidered the constellations known to, to Israel. The heavens once again were torn open. And this time, sinful man declares, here hangs the Son of God. Oh God, open our eyes to see. Have mercy on us. Amen. We're going to uh, respond in song. Again, for those in the building, we'll to reflect quietly in our hearts. For those at home, do feel free to sing. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb.
Friends, we've heard God explain to us today from his word why this is indeed Good Friday. And the bread and wine set before us picture that reality again in a complementary way, in a physical, tangible way that we can see with our eyes and take uh, in as we eat uh, and drink. So as we approach the table, friends, we respond to the gracious invitation of the host, the Lord himself who invites us to come to eat with him to be strengthened in faith as we share this simple meal together in remembrance of him to remember his death in for our sins in the past we cast our eyes forward in faith to long for his glorious return as well and he will complete the work of salvation that he began so wonderfully uh, on good friday And friends, we gladly then welcome to the table today all who know and love the Lord Jesus. All who look at the cross and see the Son of God bearing the judgment of God for the people of God. All who've been baptised according to their conviction of the scriptures and are in good standing with their local church. You are welcome to come and eat in remembrance of him. This is just simple bread and wine. There's nothing magic here. It was bought yesterday in a shop. The simple elements speak to us of the greater reality. Not themselves, but beyond themselves, to Christ himself. They stand and represent in a symbolic way his body broken, his blood shed for us. And for our salvation. And the very act of eating reminds us we come as needy people, don't we? Hungry people wanting to be satisfied again with Christ, to feed on him by faith in our hearts, by his spirit today. We invite Marco and Nicolette, Keith and Helen to come and help serve uh, the bread and the wine in a moment. Uh, you'll be served the bread and wine in close succession. Do just hang on to both elements until we've all been served, and then I've uh, served them, and then we've all sat down, and then I'll make it clear when we eat. Andrew. So you'll be served both, just hang on to both, uh, and then uh, we'll pick up and read through the next part. So Marco and Nick and uh, Keith and Helen, thank you. We will put the bread and the wine into your hands, so please don't grab from the end of the plates. Let us serve you. That's uh, the protocol.
the Apostle Paul recounting the events of uh, the Last Supper, which we commemorate as the Lord's Supper, reminds us that he received from the Lord what he passed on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. Friends, let's eat bread in remembrance of Christ. Paul continues in the same way after supper, the Lord took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's drink the wine in remembrance of him. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this simple meal, just the bread and wine, and yet they speak so powerfully, it speaks so beautifully to our hearts as we eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. Thank you that you feed us by faith, you nourish us with Christ himself. Christ himself meets us at the table and is present with us. It is his table after all. Thank you for this table, this meal speaks so powerfully of all that Christ has done for us. His body broken, his blood shed. Thank you that he was the son of God who bore in our place the judgment of God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Father, please nourish and sustain our faith as we've heard the word and as we've seen the word in that sense kind of lived out before our eyes as we've eaten and we've drunk. Sustain our hearts this Easter time, we pray, in the grace of the gospel, in the power of Christ, and in confidence that he has borne our sins, exhausted the judgment from all who would turn to him, so that we might go confident today. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. As we pray it for his glory. Amen. Friends, we've remembered Christ. We've met with him by his spirit, both in his word and at his table. We've been welcomed to feast with him 
by our risen Lord himself. We celebrated this meal and it's a bit odd, it's a bit dislocated under these current conditions, even at the best of times. It's a strange occurrence. It's a meal that has a stage now, but we look forward to a greater eating and feasting on the great day when our Lord himself returns. Paul reminds us we proclaim the Lord's death in this meal until he comes. Come he will. Until then we live by faith, longing for his appearing.